0: Namo Aetasa Bhagavad-Gurah Tura Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Aetasa Bhagavad-Gurah Tura Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Aetasa Bhagavad-Gurah Tura Sama Sambuddhasa Budang Damang Sangang
1: Namas So this is one of the things that I continue, even though I'm no longer a monastic. The custom as a monastic, a Buddhist monastic, in the Ajahn Forest tradition, is that any time we are sitting on the Dhamma seat, uh, before we give a Dhamma reflection, we do this little chant. And it's kind of like code. And code, this code, is for both of us. It's the code for me to remember this is not an opportunity for me to give you all of my views and opinions. I have plenty of them, but this is not the time. (laughs) And the code for you is is that, you know, we're not hanging out on a street corner chit-chatting, that this actually is an opportunity for listening and reflecting on things that may, in fact, be really significant. And so... To hear that chant in a traditional Buddhist monastery is code to pay attention in a particular way. So ordinarily, when we are listening to somebody speak, we put 95, 98% of the attention on the the sound and the sight of the person that we're listening to. uh, In an ideal world if we're not texting and multitasking and all of that. But in a Dhamma reflection, what's really helpful is that 80% of your attention is actually immersed in your own body experience. And not more than 20% is on me and what I'm saying. And in that way, when you've got both of those happening, you're listening and seeing, but your attention is suffused in your own body experience, then as and when you hear something that resonates with you, your body will respond. You'll breathe deep, you'll sigh, your shoulders will relax, your spine will elongate, you'll feel excited, you'll feel relieved, and you will know it as a body response. So code for you all is to pay attention in a way where your attention is, is immersed in your body experience so that you can feel when there's resonances. But you can also feel when there isn't resonances. And so if I say things that there's no resonance, there's no need to, to do anything with it. You don't need to believe it. You don't need to reject it. You just don't need to take it on board at all. Sometimes what can happen is that teachings and a teacher can touch close to a nerve. And sometimes that means that either it's not something to listen to or that there's something that's really important to pay attention to because it's actually a little uncomfortable. And so, it takes some discernment to be able to know the difference between uh, a reaction which is like "ooh," which actually means, (laughs) or a reaction which is "ooh," which is like maybe not so much, yeah. But when our attention is suffused in our own body, then we have the greatest possible opportunity to bring that discernment into what's happening for us and how we're responding. So even though there's many people in this room, and ostensibly I'm the only one that's speaking, when attention is immersed in the body in this way, then there can be a perfect dialogue with everyone, where there is the hearing and the response, the hearing and the response. And so there's complete communication about what's actually happening. This is not meant to be a smear job or that I'm dishing out information for you to swallow. It's meant to be a a feeling, sensing, breathing in, living experience to sense whether what I have to say or what the teachings have to say is useful. So I want to talk about choice and the way that impacts us, the kinds of choices that we have. So, I don't know about all of you, but I know this year has been one of the most challenging years of my life. Anyone else having similar experiences? You know? Just as a, like as a two-minute synopsis, I was here teaching in September of last year and I heard that my nephew took his life. A month later we had the fires in Santa Rosa and I had to evacuate, my mom had to evacuate with her dog, Shanti had to evacuate, the executive director of the organization. We left for a while, I came back and my health didn't hold up to the toxicity in the area. So I had to evacuate again. I was on the road for over a month. I came back and I couldn't stay in my apartment. So I had to leave my apartment. And then I was trying to be close enough so that I could help my mom, because she's frail. And the close proximity to Santa Rosa meant that my health crashed. So since December... I have been kind of like all over the map, trying to pull my health back together without a place or base to live. And one of the things that crashed was my cognitive functions. So to be able to figure things out when the operating system isn't working has inherent challenges. So that's been my year. And June, before that September, was when I disrobed. So I had been a monastic living in the monastery for including the time as a novice for 28 years and I come into this world and there's all these things like hair and clothes and driver's license and driving and bank, I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have, you know, just like... So kind of all of the transitions that have to take place over the course of a lifetime Like most of them were compressed into like four months with me, you know? So it's been a remarkable year. And so when health is challenged like that, like when your system is just not working, then one of the things that I notice is that it's like, what's possible is like right here. Like I don't have more than like a few millimeters in front of my nose in terms of what I can decide. But there still always is choice. There's choice about where I place my attention and what I do with what arises. Now with all of the scenarios, there was an infinite number of opportunities to completely flip out regularly. You know, about what-if scenarios. You know, what if I don't ever get better? What if I can never go back to Santa Rosa? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? So we have the option of flipping out. That is a choice. Where we follow a train of thought that is based in fear or anxiety, which leads to more thoughts that are based in more fear and more anxiety. And the fear and the anxiety escalates. And sometimes it can escalate until it gets out of hand. And our whole system feels completely anxiety-ridden. And so we have to see that in that, there were choices that we made before it became out of control. There were places where we put our attention There were things that we did that encouraged the anxieties that supported that whole cycle moving out of control. Now, when we see that, we see the choice that we made. And when we see the choice that we made, then we have more capacity to make a different choice. When we don't see it, when it feels like the whole thing is just a black box, we don't know how we ended up in such a distressing state of mind. We don't know how we got there. So anytime we have a measure of conscious awareness which is, for most of us, a lot of our life, there are times when we have illnesses or brain damage or concussions or we get dementia or whatever kinds of stuff's going on that obscure certain choices. But as long as we, sometimes we take too much alcohol or take too many drugs and it diminishes our capacity for reflective awareness and choices... Which is part of the reason why in the Buddha's teaching there's a support for integrity and sobriety. Because without a certain amount of reflective awareness, everything else is really a whole lot harder. Just really tough. So a community that supports each other staying clean and sober is creating the ground for being able to do this work and it takes guts to do this work, and it takes guts to stay clean and sober. So we have choices about where we place our attention. So in the beginning, I invited everybody to stand up, and some people didn't, you had a choice. And I invited you to pay attention and to bring your attention through your whole body and to invite relaxation. There's a million things that we could have done with our attention. But that was where I was guiding you to focus. Now, what you focus on is going to impact what you experience. So the experience of feet is different than the experience of hands. The experience of legs is different than the experience of face. Feeling the ground underneath us is different than feeling the air around us. So in any moment, there are a myriad of choices of where we put our attention. But because often what happens is that our attention is grabbed by the biggest thing that's going on. So it's like we are pulled, compelled then we cease to notice the choice because we feel stuck into the experience that is the strongest experience that's going on. Now, alongside my own life, a number of my friends have also been dealing with their own stories, their own challenges. Friends have lost family members this year. Friends have had babies born this year. There have been medical crises to deal with, financial crises to deal with. Some people I know uh, look at the news and feel absolutely heartbroken and completely devastated by what they see in the news. These are real things that are going on. They're not imaginary and yet, when we open up to what is happening, we have a choice of what we do with what our experience is and where we place our attention. Now let me shift and tell you a little story about being a nun. And then I'll come back to this. As a monastic, we had alms bowls. And our alms bowls was the way in which we ate. So food would be served. We'd put some food in our alms bowl and that's how we would eat. Now our culture around alms food is not around taste or how many amino acids and vegetables are there and whether it's this way or that way but around focusing on the generosity of the gift just focusing on this was given, this food was given, this, is, this food was offered in faith. And so one of the customs that has continued is that every time I sit down and eat, I chant a blessing to help me reflect on the m- many different ingredients that came forward in the food. So what's different now as a civilian is is that I have money in my pocket. I can go into a store and I can buy things with money. As a monastic, I didn't have money. And so it was often the case that I was reliant on others for the food that I ate. So when we have money in our pocket, we have the delusion that we are in control in a different way than when you're a monastic, there's less delusion about being in control. And so the natural tendency of expressing gratitude sometimes can get obscured under the sense that I have control over what I'm eating and can make that, make choices that then disconnects me from my sense of being connected with where this comes from. So it's a funny kind of thing that happens in our brain. That when we pay for something, somehow it makes us feel less connected to where it came from. But it's, it still comes from the earth. It still requires water and sun and work It still comes here because of a whole lot of numbers of people who've been involved with planting and harvesting and transporting. Some people have the good fortune of eating the food that others prepare, the efforts, the kindness of that. But it's often the case that we focus on the taste and we miss the context. Okay? So when we focus on the context that the food comes because of all of these different ingredients that are here, we're part of a web of life. There are all of these different people that have touched this food, that have grown it, that have harvested it, that have transported it. When we touch into that, when we feel that, I feel part of a bigger web of life. Like when I take a minute and feel the ground underneath me I don't feel alone. I feel supported. The earth has been carrying me every step of my life since the moment I could walk. And so that deep sense of you know where do I belong, or what's going on, or who's here to support, or any of those things, it it releases when I feel connected to the land. So, the mind has a tendency to move out in front of itself, and grab hold of what is the biggest, most intense thing that's going on, and then to have associations and proliferations around it. And this causes these spirals to move us into anxiety or fear or despondency or depression. But when we allow our attention to focus on what's right here and then choose where we place our attention and then be noticing how we are responding to what's arising, then we have choice about whether we are moving in the direction of fear or in the direction of not fear or love, kindness, compassion, equanimity. And so when we choose to focus on something... And our system gets activated, so there's many things that are going on in our worlds around us that is activating, it's heartbreaking, it's frightening, it's scary. It takes discernment to touch those things and to have our attention focus in a way where we don't spin out. So, in my own experience over this last year, My health has been challenged more so than it has ever been in my life. And I have gone through all kinds of health stuff. I mean, it would take a long time (laughs) to go through all the health things that I've navigated in a lifetime. But this year has topped it. But what I could notice is is that if I was very discerning about where I focused my attention, then I I could move towards calm, towards kindness, towards relaxation. I didn't focus on the things that I couldn't know. I didn't focus on the what-if scenarios that would make me crazy or anxious. I focused right here with what I did know, with the next thing that was right in front of me that was kind, that was supportive, that was loving, that was allowing my system to feel nourished, to feel rested, and to relax. And one of my supports is nature. So I have rock friends and tree friends. And I make friends with dogs and cats. And sometimes I was staying in Forestville for a while and Armstrong Woods was just 12 minutes away from me. These ancient redwoods, you know. So I would, you know, when I wasn't holding it very well, I would go and just let myself lean into these... 1,400-year-old trees and let them hold it for me. So what happens for me when I do that is, is that I stop thinking that I have to figure it all out. And when I stop think that I have to figure it all out, my body starts to relax and my attention starts to become more open. And as I relax attention in this open awareness, I begin to get a sense that I'm not a solid, separate lump. That what I actually am is something that is bigger and much more pervasive. So it wasn't through the direct intention to cultivate loving-kindness but often through the ability to let the mind open into a pervasive awareness. That when I would do that and relax, I could see that the other quality of pervasive awareness is love. It's open, it's accepting, it's inclusive, Everything is welcome. There is no judgment. It doesn't demand. It just is open and receptive. So, my pathway to enter into that was to connect and to ground and to allow myself to relax in a field that would hold attention in a place that was other than the tightness and the constriction of what it was that I was experiencing. And naturally, the result was a feeling of peacefulness, of openness, of spaciousness and love. Now, let me dial this back to some classical Buddhist teachings and see if there's a resonance for yourselves and how this works in our daily life. Every experience that we have, we have contact. We have sight, we have touch, of taste, smell, feeling, thought. And with every single contact that we have, there's a feeling connected to it, it's pleasant or unpleasant, or neutral. Now, when we have ordinary experiences, like, this is neutral for me, it's a cup of water, it might be slightly pleasant because I'm thirsty, okay? So when I'm thirsty, there's a little bit of wanting to drink, And if I drink enough, then it becomes neutral because I don't have the wanting to drink anymore. So what happens for a lot of us in our world is that our world is is that we're constantly being bombarded with contact. And with the contact comes pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling and neutral feeling. And usually we spend a lot of our lives wanting to collect pleasant feelings. We want the warm fuzzies. We want the things that affirm our idea of who we are. We want the things that make us feel good. And we want to get rid of the cold pricklies, the nasty things, the feeling embarrassed or ashamed or feeling stupid or feeling um, vulnerable, our grief, our outrage... And so our world then gets organized around wanting the things that we want and wanting to get rid of the things that we don't want. And we can get ourselves into a tizzy around what we want and what we don't want. What we have an opinion about, what feels absolutely outrageous, completely unjust. How many of us have felt outraged and things were totally unjust in this last week? Okay, when we're feeling outraged and like things are totally unjust, there is all kinds of energy in our thinking that supports our feeling that way. Now, we can harness that energy and mobilize it towards doing something which is supportive and congruent with our values, or we can just get lost in those trains of thought. But the choice is, what happens when we notice we're experiencing that, and how do we relate to it? So, being human beings with a reflective awareness we have choice about where we focus our attention. We can stay focused on the things that are making us wind up, or we can turn our attention to focus on how can we direct this energy in a way that is life-affirming, that is supportive, that is incongruent with my values, that makes me feel joyful. Or we can focus our attention on everything that made us pissed off and our justifications about why we should feel so pissed off. That is the choice. And that choice comes up regularly. In every instant we have that choice. And we are not trained to choose love. Oftentimes we choose fear and its correlates. Anxiety, agitation, anger, depression, cynicism, despondency, hopelessness, powerlessness, Because our minds don't see that we make a choice in what we pay attention to and how we focus on it. So, the good news is that we have choice. The bad news is that we have choice. And what I mean by that is that some of the agitation that we experience is the consequence of the choices that we've made. Now, this is not 100% universal. All kinds of people that went through the fires, all kinds of people that go through natural disasters, all kinds of people that experience systemic abuse for sustained periods of time have trauma. It's not simply a question of where you focus your attention. It's a question of a physiological response that gets tangled up around a particular stress mechanism which the brain then has an overfiring response and tends to perpetuate itself. So I don't mean in any way to disregard the challenge that trauma brings in terms of needing to create the conditions to let that whole mind-body system unwind so that we can then return to choice. When we have the support to do that work, then we can have more access to the choice that I'm speaking to. And that choice is really a choice of love or fear. Now I remember in the monastery, One of the monks was agitated because he was so angry he wanted to kill somebody. And Ajahn Sumedho said to him, but did you kill him? And the monk said, no, of course I didn't. And he said, that's love. You didn't kill him, that's love. So when we talk about choosing love, sometimes it's not as kind of like airy-fairy and pink marshmallow. It's like if you want to hurt somebody and you don't, that's love. So when it comes to ourselves, we also have... uh, lots of times not very good habits. Sometimes we speak to ourselves, we think about ourselves, we criticize ourselves, and it's so ingrained we don't even notice it. It's like wallpaper. We don't even notice that we do that. So when we take a time out from those kinds of habits, when we use the precept form of harmlessness as a way of taking a stand against that way of thinking, that way of self-talk, that way of relating to ourselves. When we notice those thoughts and don't follow them, don't believe them, that's a choice of love. And that love is really important. Because when our system is inundated with this incessant criticism and judgment of somehow being insufficient or basically bad or fundamentally flawed, that sets us up for other choices that support us to feel fear, to feel anxiety, to feel despondent, to feel powerless, to feel hopeless, to feel depressed. Now, it's not our fault that we have those thoughts. They come because of a whole variety of causes and conditions. But it is our responsibility to notice and to not believe them as if they are gospel. And that takes motivation. It takes discernment. It takes focus to be able to catch them. And it takes changing our focus of our attention onto something Other. So meditation is a magnificent tool and support to give us some leverage to be able to navigate all of these things. So whether your year was like mine, one of the most challenging years you've had, or whether this year was a, a year of magnificent success and joy the tools of meditation give us the resources to meet what's arising and to focus in a way that supports us with the most amount of well-being that's possible. So, you know, one of the things that I feel really grateful for is that in spite of the challenges that I have had to navigate the, the training in meditation was a phenomenal asset that never left me and so even though some of my cognitive functions were not functioning very well the capacity to make choices about where I placed my attention never left me and that capacity to choose love never left me. And so, to know that when we make an effort to train ourselves, that that training goes with us wherever we go, no matter what kind of circumstances we have to navigate. It's It's powerful. So, the key to choosing love is to notice what's happening and how we are relating to it. So, even though experiences can be varied. Notice what's happening and how you're relating to it. And if you're tight and contracted, then what's needed is to invite relaxation. If you're pushing and resisting, then what's needed is embracing. But the key is to notice what's happening and how you're relating to it. And that is the place where the choice comes. So let me pause here and invite questions or comments or impact or discussion and see what opens up in the community. Yes, please. Let's wait for the mic. Thank you. I'm curious. uh, You spent 28 years in a coveted and protected life in many ways and uh, you express gratitude. I'm curious, what Uh, were some of the choices that
2: uh, you made towards disrobing?
1: So I ordained with the commitment to stay until I knew with conviction that it no longer served me. That was my commitment. And that commitment served me very well. And the commitment to awakening remains very strong. But a few years ago, I started thinking, is this the only aspiration that I have, the commitment to awakening? And then I began to realize that my aspiration also included aliveness and wholeness and for me, I was experiencing the way the monastic form and the way I was relating to it was disallowing aliveness in my own body system and disallowing wholeness because of the rules, because of the some of the patriarchy that I couldn't get far enough away from and because of the impact that these things were having on my own system. So at some point, and my brain doesn't do time sequencing, I began to say, when I put these two together, the aspiration for awakening and the aspiration for aliveness and wholeness, does it still serve me? And then the realization was, no, it doesn't. But what was interesting for me was because I have struggled with some of the issues around the patriarchy and the way in which the, the, that plays out and the impact that it had on me personally and what I was observing in the nuns, I had doubts for many years, many, many years. But because my commitment was to stay until I had conviction, it no longer served me the fact that I had doubts was not sufficient. I needed to know with confidence that it no longer served me. And so when I put those two things together, that my aspiration shifted to the aspiration for aliveness, wholeness, as well as awakening, and I put them all together, then it was clear that a monastic renunciant form was no longer serving my aspiration. Thank you. Yes, please, in the back here.
0: Have you ever met someone awakened?
1: Uh, I would say yes.
0: Can you need to describe what that looked like to us?
1: well i met um i met the dalai Lama, and I think his um, compassion and his uh, humility is an example of awakening. I met um, Sayadaw and his um His. I don't know how to describe it. His, the spaciousness of his presence, I think, was an aspect of awakening. I've met, um, had the incredible good fortune of meeting Deepama, who uh, was a, a, a very accomplished meditation master who was born in Bangladesh and lived in India. And the thing that I loved about her was that even though I had heard stories about how accomplished she was and how deep her insight was and how many psychic powers she had the ability to manifest, the thing that was striking about Deepama was this quality of love. In her presence, you felt like you were in an ocean of love. And that she absolutely saw you and completely embraced everything about you. So she was not mild or meek. You know, she was incredibly direct and she could be phenomenally fierce. But there was this loving presence about her that was... I had not experienced anything like it before. It was just awesome. Anyway, there's many people that I've met. Thank you. Hi, Um, in the beginning you said something about, when you were talking about resonance and reaction and paying attention to our bodies. And you said something about knowing when we're being triggered and it's something we need to look at inside versus knowing when um, we have a reaction or an aversion to something that is really something we just need to let, let go of. So can you say more about that distinguishing between knowing when just to leave something alone versus when it's actually a problem inside of us? and. Knowing, listening to the body, or however you want to describe it? So it's a brilliant question, and it's actually not easy to describe because for different people, their discernment around it is different, okay? But you know, when you have a watermelon, when it's ripe, and you tap on it, it has a different sound, Mm -hmm. okay? Well, there's something that's equivalent when. When, when something is actually uh, an internal thing that needs attention, what happens in my own system is there's a dullness. It's like my whole system becomes much more dull and, it, and it's very difficult to actually discern what's happening. It becomes dull and... Like this, a blind spot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But when I'm clear that this is this is no, then it's a very clear resonance. Okay. It's like the watermelon when it's ripe. It's like absolutely no, there's nothing, you know, it's like no. Okay. And then sometimes when I get that, then I will still use discernment to double back and check to make sure if there's even a small grain of what's here that's useful for me to look at and explore myself. But that Clear resonance, that clear, it's a somatic resonance rather than a tonal one, then for me that's an indication that's not for me to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. There's a question here.
0: Lou, Lou. So there's a there's a buzzword currently uh going around in pop culture. And that buzzword is is woke. Being woke, uh are are you familiar with the term? It's just it really just means being socially aware. Um and, and my question is, you know, I guess is there what what would the difference be between you know being awakened and being woke or being socially aware?
1: Hmm. Okay so social awareness has to do with culture and convention and um and th- those things change So um Like I saw somebody posted a picture on Facebook and it was a 1970s party and one person was wearing tie-dye and somebody else had bell-bottom pants and I can't remember what the third person was wearing. So in 70s culture and what was okay is different than it is now. So social awareness is partly conventional with what's happening in the milieu And there's things about that that are really significant. Like, I noticed when I came up that there's a sign that says Spirit Rock is committed to diversity. Okay? That sign was not there when I came here many years ago. It's the result of an incredible amount of hard work and painful conversations and the recognition of what happens when there isn't diversity and the impact of that. Okay? So that sign is an expression of wokeness. (laughs) If I use the word right. Okay? Awakening is the ability to see the nature of the mind as it peels layers of its own self-structure, which is one of the things that, for me, was actually challenging. Because the monastery could be a phenomenal um, container and support for awakening and be retarded in woking. And that, for me, had a problem because I was interested in having the awakening in the woking to have them come together. It didn't make any sense to me to have a community where there were things that were happening that were harmful to a section of the community and have that be unexplored. Or not negotiable, or not able to be discussed and ameliorated. It just didn't make any sense. Or the reasons that I was hurt, well, that I heard, they didn't add up to my understanding, which is that the Buddha's teachings is about harmlessness. But that's one of the challenges: is that the mind of awakening, unless it's it's it, it, there, can be a challenge in integrating that. Into the social conventions that are contemporary for our day, and so what's what's needed is the recognition that unless that integration takes place, there's a gulf that that is um, uh, incongruent with the teachings, and it's not helpful for the faith of the larger community to support it does that answer your question? yes yeah thank you so there's a question here raise your hand again that's right
2: Thank you. Your words are very touching. You said that the meditation is a magnificent way to, to become aware. But I didn't understand the path between sitting half an hour in the morning and when my children gets me mad. How am I going to be aware at this point? I mean, how Sitting in the morning would help me when I'm getting really stressed out, being aware to it.
1: It's a really important question, because for many people there feels to be a big gap between the internal experience of meditation and the external world of chaos, and how to relate to all of that. So what happens in meditation, ideally, is not that we are closing ourselves off and not having any experiences, but we're actually engaged in a dynamic way of training the muscles of our mind to make those choices. But we're doing it in a context that's less activating. So we are focusing our attention, we are learning how to calm our body, heart and mind. We're seeing what calm body heart and mind feels like we are seeing the choices that are present when our body is calm and we are noticing the difference of when it's not calm we're using the muscles of meditation in order to learn how to shift our focus of attention and to support relaxation and well-being and the heart opening to qualities of kindness and love and joy and equanimity Okay, now, life happens and children show up and they are strategically organized to push buttons. That's their kind of genetic function in life as well as being loving and, and just incredible. Yeah, so things get activated and there's a big flare of feeling. Now, with meditation, what we can learn is first we notice that we're angry, we're upset. That's the first thing. There's this big, huge thing. We're angry and are upset. And then we can learn how to pull it apart. Why am I upset? What needs are not getting met? Okay? What needs are not getting met? And then what is my responsibility in this moment? So rather than navigate a volcano, we start pulling it apart and we have threads. There's threads of... I need to make sure that they are safe or that we need to get out in time and I've been asking for 15 minutes and they just put a whole game on the floor and I need to clean it up before we leave and it's going to take more time or somebody did something to somebody else and they're hurt so I need to interact with them. But there's also the whole emotional world of stuff that's there that is not related to the kids but it's related to me and my own feelings about stuff that happened for me in the past. Okay, so the discernment in meditation can start pulling the threads apart. They can bring an immediate first aid response to, okay, I'm upset. I need a timeout. What is my immediate responsibility here in order to making sure that the kids are safe, that I'm safe? And then looking at what are all the pieces that are on the table now? I might need to table some when I've got more time to look at. But why am I getting so agitated by this experience? So, the fundamental teaching in meditation is that things that are happening are not out there, but it's the combination of the way I'm experiencing and the way I am reacting to it. It's the same thing. What's happening, and how am I relating to it? What's going on right now? Why am I so pissed? Not to judge it, but just to see it. And where can I put my attention so that I've got a different choice? And it might be that initially what you need is a timeout yourself. Okay, kids, I need a timeout. I just lost it. Let me just take three breaths, turn around, not look at you. I will be back in a minute and see if I can do this without breathing fire. And then you come back and you say, okay, this is what we need right now. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So it helps with the muscles of the mind to figure out what's actually happening and then to discern what's needed, and where are there choices about where you placed your attention. But when there's something huge that happens, it's very compelling and your attention is grabbed. And that usually is something that takes a lot of training to navigate that and find in the moment a different choice. I think we've got time for one or two more questions. Do you had a question?
0: Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your talk, so uh, very powerful. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, as you started spiraling, you had a lot on this year, so as you started spiraling, were you able to, through 29 years of practice, figure it out on your own, or did you reach back into your monastic life and talk to your peers and teachers and ask for help, or was it solely your practice?
1: Um, it's a combination of practice and friends and nature. Practice friends and nature. One here and then one in the back, in the very back.
2: I loved hearing your chant, and I feel that in my body, the chants that I know will just start Mm -hmm. happening. Sometimes when I'm getting nervous and I'm getting scared and I feel like I'm getting to the edge of some crisis, I just wonder if there's a a slogan, a chant, or a Dharma um, shortcut you know like some two or three words just for a help you know like have a post-it that kind of comes to your mind or to your heart that helps you make a better choice rather than a not peaceful choice
1: it's the mantra what's happening now and how am I relating to it you know what's happening now and how am I relating to it choose love choose love choose love in every moment you have the choice choose love
2: Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. Nice. Nice talk. Um, just, uh, I think I'd just like to add this, that uh, I think that it's important that we understand how to get back to what you call the experience of our lives. Uh, it's all we have, Um for all the thought and all the philosophy we have, the moment-to-moment experience of our lives. We say, for example, that cliché that uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as though somehow it never got past the eye. Uh, And so we become critics of the world, aesthetic critics and stuff. I'm using that as an example because... Beauty is something that we are capable of experiencing. And I would ask people here, forget about the sunset or the rose. Yes, it's beautiful. What does it feel like? Ask yourself, what does it feel like to experience love, beauty, the color green, the time of the day, the sun, all of it? Uh, don't name it. Don't nominate it. Just know, understand, because your body, your life will tell you the understanding itself that your body has of your own experience. Uh, and it is subjective. It's existential. It is very much like the romantics of the 19th century. They, at the best and the best sense of it, re- return yourself to that beautiful subjective place where you live, your experience. But don't give it away in terms of language or discussion or what have you. That's another thing entirely. Uh, we always say that in school, I taught English, that nouns are the uh, persons, places, things, and concepts. Nouns are not that, they are the names of things. We name things. In that way, we're able to deal with them and keep them at a distance. So So
1: let me ask you, as you're talking, what are you feeling
2: now? What? Excuse me?
1: As you're talking, what is your experience? What are you feeling now?
2: Uh, I'm feeling uh, the extremely good feeling of being able to express what I feel. And because one of the uh, part of the equipment that I have is language and thought, I'm able to do that.
1: So the very exquisite feeling you have, can you say more about
2: that? Um, uh, Yeah, good question. Uh, And again, I would have to use words to explain it. And uh, it's certainly a feeling of fullness, of completeness, of uh, being able to express... Uh, what I'm expressing, which is not easy. No, it's not. Finding the language that's and right. connecting it with the experience. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and it's lovely. It's finished. It's what we mean by fine. Wonderful. So beautiful. Uh, it's complete. It may be wrong. It may be uh, right. But
1: Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you. Thank
2: you for giving me the opportunity. Yes,
1: thank you. Thank you. And I just want to say hello to all of my friends who are listening on live stream, whoever, I know a few of you are out there. I see a little camera on the back wall. (laughs) And I'm saying hello. So I want to close with a chant. It's, um, It's one of the chants that I love the most, even though I just love this chant. So just sit and listen and enjoy. Ya ni
0: da bhutanee samaanga tanee bhuma ni wa ya ni wa ya daleke nama. Here I need
1: your effort coming here tonight it's lovely to spend this time together and take what's useful leave what isn't